Robin Robertson is by any measure one of the foremost poets of the English-speaking world, having published six books of his own poems to great acclaim and translated brilliantly the great Swedish poet and Nobel laureate Tomas Tranströmer, as well as two plays of Euripides, The Medea in 2008, and hot off the presses, The Backy uh, in 2014, just out. Robertson grew up in Perthshire in the northeast of Scotland, a place I've never visited, but which I successfully traversed on Google Maps. It was a place he has written where history, legend, and myth merged cohesively in a landscape. It does certainly in Robertson's work with its deep investigations of landscape as powerful as those we find in Frost or Hardy or Heaney. Robinson's work creates the wonder that in turn it takes as its occasion as in a great recent sonnet addressed to his daughter, Keys to the Doors, where Robinson explains to her, quote, each new trick of the world, the moon, the stars, sorry, the moon and stars, rainbows, photographs, gravity, the birds in the air, the difference between blood and water. Before, unquote, before later in her life and later in the poem, conceding the existence of, quote, cruelty and fear, age and grief and death. Robertson's work expresses wonder in both senses, the child's awe and the grown-up's disappointment. There is no telling where this extraordinary work will go. Natalie Handel is a talent as rich and various and surprising and thrilling as any poet, her and my age. Handel was born and raised uh, in Haiti by parents of Palestinian uh, descent. She has since lived and worked all over the world, now mainly in Paris uh, and New York. Her poems make language their place, even as her language encompasses many places, from Spain, where she lived and wrote her Lorca in reverse masterpiece, Poet in Andalusia, to Haiti, where she returned after the 2010 earthquake, to the Middle East, where she explores, which she explores with an exile's pining and precision. Handel has compiled two anthologies, The Poetry of Arab Women and Language for a New Century, Contemporary Poetry from the Middle East, Asia, and Beyond, and numerous plays, all to great acclaim. This is a body of work that is giving us the inside narrative of our changing world, as broad and comprehensive as any personally devastating writing we possess. Please welcome first, Natalie Handau. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here. Uh, I thought I would begin the evening with um, a poem uh, on Haiti. Uh, I have a forthcoming book entitled, in April entitled The Republics, uh, République d'Haïti and República Dominicana, the island of Hispaniola. Uh, Zadie Smith wrote a piece in The Guardian uh, on Liberia. And the Open Foundations, uh, the Soros Foundation, decided to send 10 writers to developing countries to write about education to see if their insight as writers would perhaps uh, help change education, help change policy. And I decided in, uh, after the earthquake in Haiti to go to Haiti. I had not been to Haiti in over 20 years. Uh, I, I left right after... Um, Papa Doc, uh, Baby Doc left in 1986. 
as you can imagine, I got to a Port-au-Prince which was completely destroyed. Uh, I had also left as a teenager, so my memory, you know, there are certain things you remember which uh, seems suddenly so much smaller. But this, the city had been destroyed. There were a few remaining um, places I recognized, like the church. Uh, the, the, the presidential palace was, had collapsed. Uh, and so I started, I wrote the piece on education, which was published in Guernica magazine. All 10 pieces were published there. But in the process, I started hearing all these, I had collected a lot of stories um, from Haiti. And people have asked me uh, over the years why I haven't written about Haiti. And I think it's because I knew Haiti in the 80s. And it was a Haiti I knew when I was very young. And I didn't, don't think I had the maturity to understand it. Uh, I don't know if I have the maturity now, but uh, I, I knew that the voices and the stories I had heard, I had to, I wanted to uh, share these stories. And so The New Republics is a collection of prose poems, or what I like to call um, flash reportage, a sort of a um, offering sort of a, uh, a mix between document uh, journal journalism or documentation and uh, prose and poetry. Uh, so I will start with a one, and these are, these are loosely based on real stories. Elsie. I don't remember what was written on the tap-tap we took from, from Pétionville to Delma. All I could think about was how nothing resurrects except old bones. Some things aren't true, even if we try to believe in them. How can we build out of trauma a huge house? Why can't we rewind our crying? I suppose when the time comes, I will open the bed to find sleep. I will remember the shoelace I hid at five, the stockings I stole from my mother. And when the time comes, I will tell you, my love, console me. I still don't know how to suffer, still can't figure out what time contemplates in the early afternoon, damn history, Damn the soul and man and his endless obsessions. Damn pains and especially damn pleasures. And damn all those who point to some other place everyone keeps escaping to. We never learn how to organize our silences. Never learn how to get rid of the wild echoes in our mouths. But you learn how to leave. Wherever you are, handsome and dressed in evening, I hope you haven't asked a beautiful woman to dance. Um, what's interesting is when I left Port-au-Prince, I went to Spain. And in Spain, uh, I discovered Lorca. Now, I never could have imagined that I would end up becoming a New Yorker, but I did. And I moved to New York right after 9-11. And I teach at Columbia. And, uh, you know, uh, Lorca, one of, the, what, one of the most extraordinary things he found about the United States is Harlem and African-American uh, and the music there. And so I, I thought, with everything happening in the Middle East, uh, where my family's from, uh, I wanted to go back to the south of Spain, to Andalusia, where... Uh, one could say convivencia exists. I had numerous debates with uh, Jewish scholars and Muslim scholars. Nobody seemed to agree. But one thing that, that, that is uh, true is that they created great art together. And what Lorca taught me is he has a, a line uh, where he says, lo que más me importa es vivir, what matters most is to live. And I think that 
I don't know if I found the answers I wanted, but I know that uh, what people want most is to live. Granada sings Whitman. By the river Henil, lovers sing what belonged to the water. A shoemaker sings the dream he had, his helper the dream he didn't. A man sings to a woman on a broken mattress. Death at midday sings on the banks of the Daro. A bland thief collecting golden poplars sings, and so does the crevice of quivers and the saints flaming La Sierra. And the men rehearsing their country. They know nothing stays, but when Whitman sings, they allow his voice to take them apart. While waiting for death. When I die, a map of the world will hang over my bed. A small library in Mijas, where I read Lorca for the first time, will become a cafe. The olive trees I cannot live without will be in full blossom. I will see death from a distance waiting for me, but I will not move. I will die on a train where the view will be of white trees suspended on gray clouds. I will die in the sky where birds will carry a stream of light on their wings. I will die in a car where the windows will be a quilt of snow. I will die moving. As I wait, my lover will say, you're beautiful. He will mean I miss the sea. I will say, I don't know the word for life, but no, we must play so that it's not only about death. He will ask, why do we grow stillness if it is a noise we are close to, where the stones and the flies and the trees and the birds and echo and earth and what hides behind them insist on music. A song will sweep by us. I will look for him. He too will be waiting, but I'm not certain for what exactly. Then I will think, Solitude knows it's where the empty space is, and death knows it shouldn't count while it waits. Uh, this next poem I was going to sing, but I have a cold, so I won't traumatize you. It's called Waltz of a Dream, and it was written as a song. It was inspired by Leonard Cohen's Take This Waltz, which was inspired by Lorca's Little Viennese Waltz. Waltz of a Dream. There's a dream of a dance that we'll remember. Their tin windows will shoulders lean on. There's a piece of suntan echoes roaming. Where love lost is a place that becomes. Dance, yes, come dance. There's a chair where that sits, there's a mirror. There's a garden that cuts hell into hills. There's a shadow that runs through the mirror and a shadow that opens the world. Dance, yes, come dance. There's a rooftop where noise keeps its hat, where white ribbon and a cry starts to fly. There are footsteps that want all the shadows. There are lovers that want all the waltz. Dance, yes, come dance. There's a hum on your forehead that hums. This dream, this dream, this dream, yes, this dream, yes, this dance. Uh, when I was a, uh, while I was a student at the University of London getting my postgraduate degree, I was reading Irish literature and Russian literature and I went to St. Petersburg and uh, I went to the Akhmatova Museum, which she's one of my favorite poets. And while there, Philip Lopate was reading uh, a piece on um, his, one of his private parts, very, very private part I won't name. 
And I thought, oh, very interesting. It, it was sort of like a, this Woody Allen movie, you know, Jewish-American guy from Brooklyn. I should speak to him. So I went to speak to him, and he, uh, and he told me, you know, you should come get your MFA. And I said, well, what's an MFA? And he told me, you know, it's a terminal degree in creative writing. And I thought, well, what does that mean? And he says, you know, you work with writers and you get a degree. I go, I never have to read Homi Baba again. <laughs> No, actually, Homie Bob is a really nice guy. But anyhow, uh, I was intrigued, and I thought, okay, well, I'll finish my my doc my thesis, and then I'll go get my MFA because I I I wanted to work with these writers, and that's what I did. But um, Ahmatova still remained with me wherever I was, and this poem is dedicated to her. Ahmatova and I, Boleros. I ask, if I start digging the red soil for wounds. What else will I find? She says, yourself, on the shoulders of a cliff, looking at the same patch of sky that has held the agitation of your wings and the person you didn't hold closer. I ask, what do you remember most? She says, when he comes to me, ask if I'm the only woman he has ever kissed, and I accept the wreckage that follows so that his lips stays close to mine. I tell her, just imagine cherries against arrows. Just imagine rows of orchards, willows, honeysuckle. Just imagine petals behind petals behind petals and ripples of a lake, the lament of a hidden face, purple nights, dying buds, wrestling leaves. Just imagine that's what happens when love turns wild in a dream. She says, have you ever danced the bolero? Corriendo. Let's say you took sea salt and placed it on my lips. Let's say by midday you told me your famous lyrics aren't written by you. Let's say your heart bleeds on my hands and you say someone else's name while inside. Let's say you show me your dangerous eyes, your hard smile, your other side, steep and wide. Let's say you bring me to the scent of lust and let the sun fall between your legs. Would that be enough? Or isn't love stranger? This next poem, uh, so my family comes from Bethlehem. Uh, and uh, Bethlehem and Jerusalem were always sister cities. Unfortunately, now there's a wall that divides them, which also means that love is occupied and divided. Because if a person from Bethlehem falls in love with someone from Jerusalem, they cannot be together because the Bethlehemite cannot live in Jerusalem. And the Jerusalemite, if he goes to live in Bethlehem, he will lose his identity card. So um, uh, this is uh, sadly the case over there. And uh, so this poem sort of reflects this love under occupation, in search of midnight. He kissed my lips at midnight. I let him. He took my blouse off. I let him. Took my bra off and touched my breast. I let him. Took my pants off. I let him. Took my underwear off and looked at me standing in this strange, dark, black and white room. I let him. A small light dimmed by the window. I took a glimpse of the city we live in. Both do not know. Then he pronounced my name wrong, and I stopped him. <laughs> Asked him if he has ever been exiled or imprisoned if he has ever mailed letters to a woman he once loved but would never see again, if he thinks we can go back to a lover even if we might not love the second time, 
asked him if he has ever robbed a small grocery store or sold bread from a peasant, if he has ever crossed seas, coasts, mountains, and still could not arrive. He answered, I did not pronounce my name correctly in my country, so I was tortured. I did not pronounce my name correctly at the enemy line, so I was exiled. I did not pronounce my name correctly upon arrival, so I was given new papers. You see, a heart in search of midnight is only a heart. Everything else is the same, except what the other is expecting. Les fenêtres. Three drafts. Draft one. Say hello. What's your name? Place a tot on his mouth, whisper you want him immediately, say, baby, you smell like no other, and as he leaves, as he enters, leave. Draft two, look at him, but don't greet him. Leave your coffee breath as is. Don't speak, lower your eyes, you're not interested. Then stand up, motion, follow me, and as he enters, enter too, but don't let him know. Draft three. Stand naked with heels on, ask him to kiss your belly button, to turn his breathing the other way, and decide which way to enter. Uh, so we were just speaking about Marfa, Texas. Does anybody know <laughs> where Marfa, Texas is? Well, it's the place where I uh, discovered the darkest skies uh, ever. I never had seen so many stars there. That was uh, quite uh, an amazing experience. But also, Marfa uh, is a city of borders. And like every place with borders, it has a lot of issues. And uh, I went there at, as a fellow at the Lannan Foundation, and this is a poem. It's called Anco, and Anco, as you might know, is a, a bookstore there. Tim says, angles divide shadows. That's what unites them, is the heart or the desert. Ray says, there's a howl in our hearts that pierces the sky when we sleep, when Woody Allen is about to dream, when part of our brain turns into salt or clouds or smog, when we think an out-of-body experience is an argument with the self, a cartwheel or a split, a sudden impact to the spine, a stray bullet, a gasp of wind unlit by wars, a glass of water, two aspirins. I mean, come on. Who told you love annoyed those who chose what's erotic? Who gets off when Star Trek is on? When, we, when will we learn to apologize properly? Forget we buy too many Lone Stars or John Wayne movies for our Blu-ray plasma TVs. Don't we know the Rio Grande's in danger? That Juarez isn't far and neither is El Paso? What's our heart at now? What does an American city say when it's not speeding, when it's made of houses of damaged echoes? Fine. We promise to conserve a river of lost translations, to borrow carefully the adobe around us. Promise to let the rain keep the prayers we left on ranches as the city split noise into canyon. Does anyone know how to bring a lie to its knees and arrest its breeding? Does anyone know where to find a truck or a cowboy or shades of neon clouds? Don't pretend to like fire or an eagle, a Cadillac or a beat up Ford. It's simple here. Rain evaporates in a second. Yellow ash wraps its breath around us. Stars conceive hearts. Big Ben is a universe, and Saturn is out, out to tell. Tim never finished his thought. But Ray told me, between First and North Gonzales, split your soul to get the music out. That night, the clouds collided and paralyzed the sky for a whole minute. 
Now a Marfa t-shirt is in my closet for keeps. What you don't want to move, you don't touch. Like minimal light that sculpts muscle out of clay. Only the desert understands. Or is it the heart? A room of moons darkening apples. How else can we get this place so right? And I will end with um, two very short poems. One is, uh, I guess, in spirit of women, because we're here and women have accompanied me all my life and uh, uh, have been a powerful force. It's called Edge. A woman is perfected, Sylvia Plath. She is bare, she is open, pearls around her neck, the moon on her shoulders. She stares at the world, takes it to the edge of all the words men weren't able to invent. And actually, two more. I spoke about, uh, <laughs> I spoke about being from uh, different places, in ha you know, just different cultures and languages but never forgetting where I'm from. And this poem sort of reflects this. It's called Blue Hours. In the blue hour, the negrita cries, I hide, not to deceive the darkness or myself. La negrita is not far from where I stand, her eyebrows, her one hand. I too am visible now, behind the tree, behind the night, behind the cry, and all I want to know is her name and ask her. Have you ever heard your heart undressing? Seen a stray dog at midnight? Realized he understands this hour better than you will understand any hour? Have you ever seen yourself in every woman with your eyes or in women with eyes more difficult than yours? Have you ever really heard your voice echoing in your nipples? She offers me tea. We end up drinking coffee, trying to reach the bottom of the cup unafraid. Now my teeth are stained, my English failing me, my Arabic fading, my Spanish starting to make sense. We are in a finca now. Perhaps we are safe. Perhaps we desire nothing else. But I can't stop bowing in prayer five times a day. My country comes to me, tells me, compatriota, I will always find you, no matter what language you are speaking. Even. And this is still in search of coexistence in peace. Nothing is even. Even this line I'm writing. Even this line I'm waiting in. Waiting for permission to enter the country, the house, the room. Nothing is even. Even now that laws have been drawn and peace is discussed on high tables. And even if all was said to be even, I would not believe, for even I know that nothing is even. Not the trees, the flowers, not the mountains or the shadows. Our nature is not even, so why even try to get even? Instead, let us find an even better place and call it even. Thank you. Well, I've been uh, lying about where I come from for so long, uh, it's not surprising that um, Dan, in his very generous in introduction, suggested I, I was brought up in Perthshire. I was born in Perthshire, Schoon, the ancient capital of Scotland, but I actually was brought up 
in this place on the northeast coast of Scotland, Aberdeen. The grey sea turns in its sleep, disturbing seagulls from the green rock. We watched the long collapse, the black drop and frothing of the toppled wave, looked out on the dark that goes to Norway. We lay all night in an open boat that rocked by the harbour wall, listening to the tires creak at the stone quay, trying to keep time, till the night fishers came in their ark, their lap of light, the fat slap of waves, the waters sway, the water mullioned with light. The sifting rain, Italic rain, the smur that drifted down for days, the sleet, your hair full of hail as if sown there. In the damp sheets we left each other sea gifts, watermarks, long lost now in all these years of the riptide swell and trawl. All night the feeding storm banked up the streets and houses. In the morning, the sky was yellow, the frost ringing. The grey sea turns in its sleep, disturbing seagulls from the green rock. I arrived here um, late yesterday afternoon and uh, I just had time to walk around this handsome lake in the last of the sun. Um, it seemed a very benign lake, but everything changes, of course, with the loss of light. Um, this describes a lake in, in Ireland, which was much less fun. The lake at dusk. I watch the day break down over the lake, wind looting the trees, leaving paw prints on the water for the water witch to read. With the pass of a hand, it stops, and the scoured lake lies pewter still in a red raking light, now hardening to mirror. Rinsed after the rain, the forest is triggered and tripwired. When I pause for a bird call, the silence takes time to reassemble around me like a dream retrieved. No one will find me here. The ditches churn with frogs, and the track is lit with their green and yellow flattened stars. Some let a cloudy scribble milk out from their sides like semen. All of them carry the same rubric, legible and bright. The reed pool trembles as if for a god. Night switches through the trees. In the open dark, all maps are useless. The tracks are bloodied. The tracks are washed clean. Is this a way through the forest, this path? Is this 
the way I came. So autumn is with us, and uh, so I thought I would read um, a translation of an early poem by Rilke. Um, she called Herbst, which is autumn. I called this one Fall. I knew that um, Rilke had written it um, soon after he arrived in Paris in 1902, but it was only much, much later um, when I was doing some research on the, the poem after I'd written it, after the Twin Towers had come down, um, that I found that Rilke wrote it on the 11th of September. Fall. The leaves are falling, falling from trees in dying gardens far above us, as if their slow free fall was the sky declining. And tonight, this heavy earth is falling away from all the other stars, drawing into silence. We are all falling now. My hand, my heart, stall and drift in darkness, seesawing down. And we still believe there is one who sifts and holds the leaves, the lives of all those softly falling. Uh, recently I've been uh, writing um, invented Scottish folk narratives. Nice to have an interest, I always think. Um, and um, they have something in common with the Celtic folk tradition. That is to say, they're everyday stories of rape, murder, madness, congenital malformation, and general bad behavior. This is um, by Clachenbridge. I remember the girl with the hair lip down by Clachenbridge, cutting up fish to see how they work. By morning's end, her nails were black-red, her hands all sequined silver. She unpuzzled rabbits to a rickle of bones, dipped into a dormouse for the pip of its heart. She'd open everything, that girl. They say they found wax dolls in her wall, puppets full of human hair, but I'd say they're wrong. What's true is, the blacksmith's son, the simpleton, came down here once and fathomed her, claimed she licked him clean as a whistle. I remember the tiny scars of her hands around the belly as it grew and grew, and how, after a year, nothing came. How she said it was still there, inside her, a stone baby, and how I saw her wrists bangled with scars, and those hands flittering at her throat to the plectrum of bone she'd hung there. As to what happened to the blacksmith's son, nobody knows, and I'll keep my tongue. Last thing I heard, the starlings had started to mimic her crying, and she'd found how to fly. I always like to introduce a, um, a carnal section um, to my readings, and that during the course of time, the carnal section has shrunk to 
really two or three minutes. Um, that is the future for you all. Anyway, um, for those of you who are feeling peckish, this is about um, preparing and eating an artichoke. The nubbed leaves come away in a tease of green, thinning down to the membrane, the quick, purpled beginnings of the male. Then the slow hairs of the heart, the choke that guards its trophy, its vegetable goblet. The meat of it lies displayed, upended, al dente the stub root aching in its oil. I was asked, for reasons I'd never understood, to write a poem about a locksmith. Um, so I did a lot of research on, on locksmithery, which is fabulously dull. Um, and, but, so I then started thinking about the links between um, keys and locks and, and the process of writing poetry, the sort of um, hidden machinery of it all. And that also, in the end, seemed very boring. So um, I turned my attentions elsewhere. Wedding the locksmith's daughter. The slow-grained slide to embed the blade of the key is a sheathing, a gliding on graphite pushing inside to find the ribs of the lock. Sunk home, the true key slots to its matrix. Geared, tight-fitting, they turn together, shooting the spring lock, throwing the bolt. Dactyls, iambics, the clinch of words, the hidden couplings in the cased machine, a chime of sound on sound, the way the sung note snibs on meaning and holds. The lines engage and marry now, their bells are keeping time. The church doors close and open underground. Um, you can have too much of a good thing. Um, the result of all of this, uh, these hijinks, is usually ending up in a, in a room full of rain. Exposure. Rain, you said, is silence turned up high. It has been raining now for days. Even when it stops, there is still the sound of rainwater laboring to find some way into the ground. We lie in grim embrace, these two halves trying to be whole, straining for this break in the static, in the white noise that was rain falling all day and all through the sheeted night. Silence is rain with the sound turned down, and I stare out now on a clear view of something left out on the line, a life snagged there, drenched, shrunken, unrecognizably mine.
I noticed in the walk around the, um, the lake, there was a lack of benches, um, uh, which would have d dismayed the character in this next poem, um, The Park Drunk, because um, he likes a good bench. This is set at the f on the first day of the new year, um, and uh, a snow has fallen. He opens his eyes to a hard frost, the morning's soft amnesia of snow. The thorned stems of gorse are starred crystal, each bud like a candied fruit, its yellow picked out and lit by the low pulse of blood orange riding in the eastern trees. What the snow has furred to silence, uniformity, frost amplifies, makes singular, giving every form a sound, an edge, as if frost wants to know what snow tries to forget. And so he drinks for winter, for the coming year, to open all the beautiful tiny doors in their crackler of frost. And he drinks like the snow falling, trying to close the biggest door of all. If he'd uh, looked around a bit, he would have you would have seen this at the end of the line. Myth. This morning in Bracken beyond the east field, I find the blown bulbs of sunset. On the wet lawn, after the snow, the snowman's spine. Two um, personal poems now. Um, the first is about the loss of a father. Ghost of a garden. Sometimes I discover I have gone downstairs, crossed the grass and found myself in here, the tool shed, caught in a lash of brambles, bindweed and tall ivied trees like pipe cleaners. It looks out vacantly on a garden run to seed, the lost tennis court grown over benches, a sunken barbecue snagged with blown roses. The courtyard walls are full of holes the swallows try to sew in and out of them like open doors. In the corner of the shed, my father is weeping and I cannot help him because he is dead. And this is about the loss of a daughter, not a death, I'm happy to say, just the moment when a father knows his child is no longer a child. This is set um, on a beach in the west of Ireland at the end of the summer, at the end of a childhood. Donegal. Ardent on the beach at Brosnala on the last day of summer, 
you ran through the shallows, throwing off shoes and shirt and towel like the seasons, the city's years, all caught in my arms as I ploughed on behind you, guardian still of dry clothes, of this little heart, not quite thirteen, breasting the waves and calling back to me to join you, swimming in the Atlantic on the last day of summer. I saw a man in the shallows with his hands full of clothes, full of all the years, and his daughter going where he knew he could not follow. You've got very powerful mirrors in this country, I notice. Um, you get an almost forensic view of yourself. Um, which has come as a shock to me, I can tell you, having had a very poor mirror for a very long time. Um, this poem is um, unfindable. Oh, yes. Um, you'll be familiar, I'm sure, with um, <coughs> bothies and shielings, um, these small huts in the middle of nowhere, well, middle of Scotland, to be precise, uh, where climbers and hikers uh, can seek shelter in bad weather. I've always found um, I've always found these places terrifying. The shelter. I should never have stayed here in this cold shielding once the storm passed and the rain had finally eased. I could make out shapes inside the occasional sound, a muffled crying which I took for wind in the trees, a wasp stuttering there at the windowsill. I listened. What looked like a small red coat was dripping from its wire hanger. There was a shift and rustle coming from the bucket in the corner by the door. I found inside a crumpled fist of balled-up paper, slowly uncrinkling. On the hearth, just legible in the warm ash, my name and dates, and above that, in a shard of mirror left in the frame, I caught sight of myself wearing something like a black brooch at the neck. Then I looked more closely and I saw what it was. Well, we're reaching the grim crescendo. Um, I'll just read um, a couple of, two or three uh, happier poems, just to, uh, just to confuse you. Uh, this is a sonnet. Um, it's a love poem. Um, and I don't write many of those. This is a, uh, about chasing the last of the day's sun. It's a kind of love poem that's trying to stay out of the shadows. Abandon. That moment when the sun ignites the valley and picks out every bud that's greened that afternoon. 
when birds spill from the trees like shaken sheets, that sudden loosening into beauty, the want in her eyes, her eyes fleet blue, the medals of light on water, the way the water intrigued about her feet, the ocean walking her out into its depth, sea lighting the length of her from the narrow waist to the weight of the breasts, the way she lifted her eyes to me and handed me back, simplified. That moment, at the end, knowing the one I had abandoned was myself, edging with the sun around the bay's scoop of rocks, rolling the last gold round the glass. That shelving love as the sun was lost to us and the sky bruised and the stones grew cold as the shells on the beach at Naxos. And the only genuinely cheerful poem I've ever written is also necessarily the shortest. <laughs> the key. The door to the walled garden, the place I'd never been, was opened with a simple turn of the key I'd carried with me all these years. So I'll finish now. Um, the, it's been a great pleasure reading with Natalie. Uh, and I'd like to thank Carol um, for her uh, hospitality and for everyone here, and to Dan for very um, elegant and surprisingly generous uh, introduction. Um, it would be quite um, wrong of me to leave you on such a, an upbeat uh, <laughs> note. Um, because I, I know you've got things self-harming to do when you get back. This is um, another one of these <coughs> invented Scots narratives. This is called At Roan Head. You'd know her house by the drawn blinds by the cormorants pitched on the boundary wall, the black crosses of their wings hung out to dry. You'd tell it by the quicken and the pine that hid it from the sea and from the brief light of the sun, and by Angus the collie lying at the door where he died, a rack of bones like a sprung trap. A fork of barnacle geese came over with that slow squeak of rusty saws, the bitter seas complaining pool and roll, a wicker of pigeons lifting in the wood. She'd had four sons, I knew that well enough, and each one wrong. All born blind, they say, slack-jawed and simple, web-footed, rickety as sticks. Beautiful faces, I'm told, though blank as air. Someone saw them once outside, hurpling down to the shore, chittering like rats, and said they were fine swimmers, but I would have guessed at that. Her husband left her, said they couldn't be his, they were more fish than human, said they were beglamoured, 
and searched their skin for the showing marks. For years, she tended each difficult flame, their tight, flickering bodies. Each night, she closed the scales of their eyes to smoor the fire. Until he came again, that last time, thick with drink, saying he'd had enough of this, all this witchery, and made them stand in a row by their beds, twitching. Their hands flapped, herring eyes rolled in their heads. He went along the line, relaxing them one after another with a small knife. It's said she goes out every night to lay blankets on the graves to keep them warm. It would put the heart across you, all that grief. There was an otter worrying in the leaves, a heron loping slow over the water when I came at scrake of day back to her door. She'd hung four stones in a necklace, wore four rings on the hand that led me past the room with four small candles burning, which she called the Room of Rain. Milky smoke poured up from the grate like a waterfall in reverse, and she said my name, and it was the only thing and the last thing that she said. She gave me a skylark's egg in a bed of frost, gave me twists of my four sons' hair, gave me her husband's head in a wooden box. Then she gave me the seal skin, and I put it on. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm sure there will be questions, but I'll lead off with one or two. Um, you both read so beautifully, so thank, thank you. Um, thinking about you in Marfa, Texas, this <laughs> desolated, sanitized desert place, I wonder what your relationship is to, to place. Um, your poems both in different ways, so richly depict places of their own. Um, is a poem for you its own environment, or is it related to what's happening outside the windows, outside the room, whatever place you may be in at that given time? Well, <laughs> the, um, that last poem I read um, was, um, was written not in some kind of uh, blasted heath. <laughs> um, it was written at, in the Christmas holidays in, um, in the Norfolk Broads, which is a, a kind of wetland area of Britain, um, East Anglia, uh, above a family, of, a family of ducks were nesting. It was the most bucolic and cheerful place I've ever been, I think. And I went up to my room and I, and uh, I think 45 minutes later had this grisly piece of vile <laughs> poetry. <laughs> so I don't know. 
I don't know what in the that case is. the poem negated the place. It seemed to, mm -hmm. yes. Mm -hmm. But I, th I think, I mean, poems don't come mm. from the room that you, ha you happen to be in at that point. They come from the streamy well of the unconscious, mm. as Coleridge would say. Um, yeah. They come from a, a long way back. Yeah. Huh. I've been meditating, I feel I've spent my whole life meditating uh, about place and space. And uh, you, you asked, you, you started your question with Marfa. I wrote this poem uh, back, the first interview I ever conducted was a Palestinian poet, Mahmoud Darwish. He had a magazine and he told me, he wanted me to interview um, European and American writers. And the first assignment I would ever have is to interview Allen Ginsberg. And I said, can't you give me an easier assignment? <laughs> mm -hmm. I didn't know what I was doing, but I interviewed Allen Ginsberg, and uh, Allen Ginsberg then passed away a month later. Uh, while I was interviewing him, he, he read to me the poem um, about uh, death. His last, his, last, his last book was Fame and Death, or Death and Fame, I, I always forget. And he read me that poem the night before. And uh, I tell you all this because 10, 10, 15 years, 13 years or so later, Mahmoud Darwish passed away in 2008. I was a, a writer in residence in Gettysburg, and I was called in to take my nation. I have a French citizenship, and I was called in to, have, to become naturalized as an American. And I took my test. And I got my American citizenship on January 20th, the day Obama became president. And of course, Ginsburg at that moment came back to me because I wanted to, uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't know how he would come back to me, but he came back to me. And I wrote, the, I started writing this poem called After Kaddish because it was Darwish's favorite poem. And then I went to Marfa, Texas. And everything came to me for these past, as he was saying, 13, 15 years of my idea of what the United States was, my idea of America. And here I was. I'd become a New Yorker. I never thought I'd become a New Yorker. I never thought I'd become an American. Uh, and I got to Marfa, this desert, which also reminded me of the desert in the Middle East somehow. But it was, you know, John Wayne country. So all these cliches that I originally had, I, pro I still had them in some ways, but I had I'd come to know America in a different way. And how this was going to, how all these spaces, which had transformed, because my, there were multiple spaces, had transformed and how they would then um, manifest on the poem uh, is interesting. So it's coming from different places, but they're, you know, when they appear, one doesn't know, and how the connections are, are interesting. What was it like to talk to Ginsburg? Traumatizing. Yeah. <laughs> was it in his apartment? It was, um, yes, he was in New York, and he, I didn't know he was sick. I was too nervous. I, did, I had no idea what I was doing, uh, and uh, I had no idea he was going to pass away, and he was, um, he was the most uncensored person that I had ever met then and now. I had never, anything you asked him, as you can imagine, he was incredibly uncensored, and uh, which means that he would tell you things that he's not, you, you, you think, you're not supposed to be saying this, but you are. And, uh, but it was also, um, 
an incredibly important moment, uh, which of course I didn't realize till after. And when it came to the Middle East, uh, he was speaking about Netanyahu. This was 1997, and here we are in 2014, and uh, nothing seems to. Ha I mean, so much has changed. Unfortunately, not for the better. Yeah. I wondered. Um, it's always on my mind because we have little kids. Uh, how you cope with or thrive on interruption um, in your work? Um, people have the <clears throat> notion that poets need total solitude, <clears throat> kind of defended from the outside world. Um, happily, that's not my experience. But I wondered um, whether interruption plays any role in your thinking about your work, uh, and if so, how you um, cope with it or thrive on it. Well, I have a, I have a day job, yeah. um, so that's one interruption. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I had... Uh, it's worked for other poets. Cavafy did pretty well. And, yeah, yeah, that's Cavafy. <laughs> um, um, I, have, I have two daughters um, who are grown up. Uh, but So when I, was, um, when I started to write, I had to get away from, from the office and from um, the family home. Uh, eventually got away from the family home quite completely. Um, but I, I would go on retreat, and um, uh, and I still sometimes do that, and uh, it's a way of just escaping from everything. And it's a it's a it's a pretty perilous approach to the creative process because you store up as if in a pressure cooker yeah. uh, all, all everything that you hope to release with a satisfying hiss of yeah. tension. It's a um, risky bet. Yeah. Yeah. And everything hangs on really how you get, how you get on in the the place that you're retreating mm -hmm. in. But I've had a fair degree of luck, except for Marfa, Texas. <laughs> I was wondering about Marfa, <laughs> which I had gone to. I think just we were trying to work this out probably a month, month or two before Natalie. And I I thought, wouldn't it be great to go and sit in the desert for a month um, in this very well-appointed Lannan house? I love deserts because we don't have them in Scotland, so there's a novelty to them. Um, and then I found, I, you know, I, I like to walk a lot and, you know, think. And as soon as I s virtually stepped out the door, there were fences everywhere. I couldn't get out into the desert because the desert was fenced off. <laughs> um, so I found it incredibly frustrating. And I wrote one managed to squeeze out a haiku sequence, <laughs> literally squeezed, <laughs> squeezed out each syllable um, about being trapped in this borderland where it's surrounded by cops, border patrol, and everything. And then I also translated um, Euripides' Bacchae, which is about a monstrous um, despot, King Pentheus, who bears a passing resemblance to Rick Perry. <laughs> Yeah, these residencies all seem set up by people who aren't writers to create the conditions under which they think writers will thrive, <laughs> industrialists and visual artists and so on. How about, how about you, Natalie, with interruption? Um, yeah, I, I find them increasingly difficult. Uh, I, I feel like my life is split in half, one which is complete isolation. Um, I live alone, I, you know, I'm 
just alone, you know, in that silence all the time. And then the other uh, part of my life is all these worlds I've inherited. And these worlds I've inherited um, carry a lot of, uh, you know, politics and social issues that I have to address and that's become part of my life and, uh, you know, but I can't stay away from. So I'm all, I always feel torn between those um, two, two sides constantly. I've, I used to live on um, the Upper West Side near Columbia, and now I've moved to Queens. And I've moved further into Queens as possible, but now Brooklyn's so expensive and Manhattan's so expensive that everybody's coming to Queens, so I don't know where I'll move mm -hmm. next. But, Staten, uh, Island. <laughs> huh? Staten Island. Staten <laughs> Island. Yeah, maybe. Mm -hmm. Anybody have a question, Selena? Um, I was really, I was really pleased with like how, um, the, and I guess this is always the case, um, the, the way that you, you two read um, added something to my experience of having read the poem, read some of your poetry um, beforehand on paper. Um, I was hearing a lot more of like the richness in, in the sound, the vowel sounds that you use, and I'm really appreciating that more. And then um, with your work, Natalie, it was uh, a lot of the conversation. Well, my father um, was a Church of Scotland minister, and I used to sit in, in the front pew uh, watching him deliver sermons. And, um, mm. and I thought this was an incredible way to earn a living. And um, I was taken not so much by, more by the cadence than by the creed. And um, so I sort of followed that through. Uh, write poetry has to have an oral dimension. It, it, it is about song. It is, you're writing your own musical score. So you have to be very precise when you're writing so that it cannot be read in any other way than the way you intend it to be read. And I take, I, I'm sure Natalie would agree, we take a lot of, and Dan, we take a lot of time getting it right. And uh, to pr present it on stage is the final uh, end result. Uh, is, is certainly crucial to me. Um, yes, I, um, I feel sometimes I love it, <laughs> and sometimes I feel, oh, I just want to write and not ever be on stage. So I, I feel, again, torn. But what I like about being on stage is exactly this, the conversation, because I think a lot of my work um, is about bridges, is about dialogue. And I happen to have inherited these crossings, and I think we emphasize so much on um, differences. And of course, there are beautiful differences that we must um, cherish and uh, appreciate. But also, there are so much commonalities. And I think we often forget uh, to go back to this humanity. And I think that um, art, and um, poetry, to me, is very much going back to that. Uh, at least I'd like to believe that it does. And so I think part of that is being on stage. Um. Marilyn. Uh, I'm very interested in uh, this going back to 
entering some sort of folk world uh, with this selfie, the figure from him, lots of selfies there. And, but also you're doing it self-consciously, I mean, and also publicly announcing it, so it's not some sort of ASEAN-like performance of thing, like, oh, it's kind of discovered from the past, you know? I mean, so what is it like to do that? Is, this, is it a way of going back to some sort of childhood? I mean, they, they also seem so incredibly visual. I felt I was in some sort of a little Gustave Doré sort of uh, engraving. Uh, but it, is it a, a childhood thing, or what is it like to create in that past, even though they don't feel, they don't feel ossified, or they don't feel old, or sort of, you know, mm -hmm. fake Welcome to my world. Um, well, I was brought up in a, uh, in a part of Scotland that uh, at that point was just about holding on to a, 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 a living folk tradition. Uh, I mean, we're coming up to Halloween just now. Um, that uh, we don't have pumpkins and uh, uh, dressing up and trick-or-treating. Um, Samhain is what it's called, and it's a, a crucial harvest, end of the harvest, turn of the year, where the, uh, the fabric between the living and the dead is at its thinnest. And these were the things that were important to us. These were, uh, and, and Hogmanay, um, the turn of the year, uh, uh, the actual turn of the year, um, these were celebrated more than any Christian festivals where I'm from. So there were fire festivals, and I was listening to you know, the, the pipe music and the folk music and hearing the old storytellers, um, the Romanes coming through. And a lot of the, the stories were passed down through centuries. And you just, this would be how we, we didn't really have the kind of things you all have now. I mean, it makes me sound like I'm 100 years old, but <laughs> it was a very uh, primitive uh, community, but is now almost gone. And the, you know, all these old stories are the same as all, uh, as you know, the, the Greek myths. Um, mm. All myths are the same myths, really. That just the names change. And uh, I'm fascinated by the the potency of of that oral tradition, whether it's song, music, or or poetry. Uh, they all f flow from the same confluence, as far as I'm concerned. And it's haunted me, um, and it's how I see things sometimes. Not exclusively, of course, but uh, I'm just interested in that, the mythic folk tradition, because it says a lot about how we all think and feel. Uh, well, Dan was mentioning um, I, I, I did some versions, very free versions of uh, Thomas Tranströmer, the Swedish poet, 
That was entirely accidental. I happened to be um, on an island on the south of, so the east, the west of Sweden. Where was it? It's west. Um, in the summer and um, thinking I would be uh, out on a boat or swimming or enjoying the fine weather. It rained every day. And, and I didn't bring any books with me. There just happened to be a collection of, of uh, Thomas Tranströmer's poems. So with every day of rain, I translated or <laughs> did a, some kind of version of a, of a, a poem. And um, the woman I was with then um, is Swedish, and uh, she gave me a, a, draw, a, a prose gloss of, of, of it, and uh, I worked it up into a kind of, made it a kind of poem in its own right in English, which I hope was as close to the original tone, at least. So that's one way of approaching it. Um, you know, Natalie has all these languages. I don't have any. I can barely speak English now because my Scots dialect's all been taken away because I, I live in England and they don't understand what I'm saying. So my vocabulary has <laughs> vanished. Um, I came to translation sort of as an act of eradicating invisibility of so much literature that I had come across um, being in different parts of the world. And I really wanted to sort of translate them. And if we think about it, there's less than 3% of literature in translation, less than 3%. And that includes sort of, that includes everything, prose, all, every genre, that's nothing. So which means our, our, our what we read of foreign literature is very little, and there's so much out there. Um, I'm passionate about um, Latin American literature and Spanish literature, and I, I just felt you know, that was really important. And of course, um, when I did Language for a New Century, which, <laughs> again, I don't quite think I knew what I was doing. When the three, three editors knew what we were doing when we embarked on this journey, which took seven years, because it, it's contemporary poetry from Southeast Asia, East Asia, Central Asia, and the Middle East from 1945 onwards. As you can imagine, it's so much work, and there's so much out there. And the other problem is not finding enough translators. For instance, nobody ever speaks about Central Asia. You know, literature from Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan, and uh, but there's so much out there. And there's also so what's difficult is I'm part of the Yale, Univer Yale University Press as a Great World series. I'm part of their board, and one of we have all these books that we want to translate. Sometimes it's not being able to find people that can speak that language or people that can, or they can speak it, but you know, to translate is, is something else. So, so there's a lot of work to be done. And to me, uh, I, I found, as a person who has constantly translated my own self uh, in life constantly, I felt it was um, an important uh, act. I was fortunate to have heard Basil Bunting read for Brick Flag. Wow. And also, um, Dylan Thomas uh, mm. read at MIT uh, about two months before he died. God. The, the music aspect of your voice, uh, especially yours, uh, just sings to me as, as did Bunting's. And, uh, well, that's, you're a very lucky man to have seen those mm. two. Um, Basil Bunting was one of the great modernist poets. Um, 
I mean, really just for brig flats, I think. Um, I mean, there are one or two other pieces here and there. Mm. Brig flats is uh, a work of genius. Um, and under-read, I'm afraid. Um, mm. Mm. I mean, he's not as under-read as David Jones, who's, I think, uh, probably the great modernist uh, of all of them. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, well, I don't know if that was a question or, or a comment. Uh, but I'm, I'm grateful to you. Thank you. Um, well, there are books for sale over there. And um, thank you very much, Robin and Natalie.